It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, October 18th, 2021. I'm Kelly Reese and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Tonight on the California Report. The California condor is under threat once again. The leading cause of death for the endangered species, lead poisoning. Then we turn our attention to national native news. Over 600 individuals have been arrested during the week-long People vs. Fossil Fuels demonstrations outside government buildings in Washington, D.C. We'll take a brief look at regional headlines and weather before Sierra Gold Parks Foundation board member Sid Brown takes us for a walk in the park to close out our newscast. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. LA Unified's COVID-19 vaccination mandate takes full effect today. As KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, unvaccinated employees aren't allowed on campus. Staff and teachers in LA need at least one COVID shot to get on campus and must be fully vaccinated by November 15th. About 95% of LAUSD teachers and administrators have met the deadline. It's unclear how many of the remainder have received medical or religious exemptions. The union representing staff, such as custodians and special education assistants, won't say how many of their members are vaccinated, but unvaccinated staff will be fired beginning November 1st. California's requirement that teachers be vaccinated or tested weekly went into effect on Friday. Unlike LAUSD, the state kept a testing option for people who didn't want the shots. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Let's turn to the environment. Lake Tahoe's water levels have dropped to a critical point where water is no longer feeding into the Truckee River, affecting salmon spawns this year. Researchers say that the lake's water level is usually replenished by melting snow over the summer. But this year, that just didn't happen as normal because of heat and dry conditions. The researchers say if Tahoe's water levels continue to fall, streams that usually flow into it could be blocked by silt and sandbars. Scientists say climate change is at the root of these problems. And another problem out in the wild. The California condor is under threat once again. The massive birds went extinct in the wild in the 1980s, but through breeding and conservation programs started to bounce back. Now, as we hear from KCBX's Benjamin Perper reporting from the Central Coast, deaths attributed to lead poisoning have been rising once again, threatening the survival of this endangered species. The California condor population is declining. In 2019, the U.S. Department of the Interior's California Condor Recovery Program counted 337 of the birds in the wild. In 2020's report, that number declined to 329. And for most of those deaths, the culprit is lead toxicosis, which the birds get when they scavenge for dead animals that have been shot with lead bullets. Lead poisoning still remains the greatest threat to self-sustainability in California condors. That's Mike Stake, a wildlife biologist with the Ventana Wildlife Society, an organization heavily involved in condor conservation and outreach to hunters to stop using lead bullets. Ventana has been documenting deaths in the Central California flock. So far this year, they've confirmed 13 deaths among Central California condors, nine of which were determined to be lead poisoning. We intensively monitor and manage this species. And so we're monitoring birds with radio telemetry. We're monitoring them with satellite GPS. And so we're able to recover birds once they die. And more often than not, that cause of death has been 
lead toxicosis. According to the Department of the Interior, from 1992 through 2020, there were 107 deaths from lead poisoning in the free-flying population. That means lead poisoning is responsible for 50% of condor deaths with a known cause in that time period. What we have is a law but the mechanism to follow the law right now is broken. Stake says the state tried to address this by banning the use of lead ammunition in hunting, which took full effect in 2019. But the law does permit the sale and purchase of lead ammunition because it's still legal to use in target ranges where wildlife is not the target. And pandemic-related shortages of copper in 2020 made it harder to get copper bullets, the main alternative to lead bullets. Stake says that may mean more people are using lead bullets in California, which would explain the uptick in condor deaths. You can easily buy lead, and it's not that easy to buy copper ammunition at the moment. So that availability, I think, is influencing a lot of people to say, well, I can't get the copper ammunition. What am I going to use? Well, I have this stock that I've invested in at home of lead ammunition. Why don't I just use that up on my private property? Chad Thomas is the non-lead outreach coordinator at the Institute for Wildlife Studies. He's also a hunter himself and says the switch to non-lead has been an adjustment from decades-old practices. For example, my grandfather used a particular bullet. My father used that bullet. Then I used that bullet. So we put a lot of faith in tools that have a long history of being effective and gotten proficient with that. So when we're told that we have to change a particular tool in our toolbox, it makes us apprehensive. But as the non-lead liaison for hunters, Thomas says it's important to make that change anyway. He says hunters and ranchers need to be educated about what lead bullets are doing to this critically endangered species. So it's important that we, as a community, go and talk with them and encourage them to use non-lead and engage with them in a, a manner and a setting that they feel comfortable with and they can have, ask questions with, and we can relay that information in terms that they can understand. Ventana Wildlife Society gives out free non-lead ammunition to hunters and ranchers across the state. Their website is ventanaws.org. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Luis Obispo. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. The James Irvine Foundation committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And finally this morning, we say goodbye to Tom Moray, a Californian who changed surf culture by inventing the modern-day bodyboard, or what he called the boogie board. Moray died last week at the age of 86 in Orange County. There's something really rolling around the USA. The Moray boogie bodyboard is here to stay. While in Hawaii in the summer of 1971, Moray, an engineer trained at USC and inspired by native Hawaiian bodyboards, took a big hunk of polyethylene packing foam, cut it in half, reshaped it a bit, and voila, the first boogie board was born. Moray quickly started manufacturing thousands of the inexpensive and durable boards in Carlsbad in North San Diego County. In a 1985 interview, Moray said he was proud of creating something that got more people into the water and did it intimidate non-surfers. So this is something that a grandma, grandpa can take and fill around in the water or they can put their little kid on. It's like a ballpoint pen. It's the same thing for everybody, whether you're a Picasso or just a scribbler. 
Again, that's Tom Moray, the inventor of the boogie board, who died last week. By the way, Moray dubbed his invention the boogie board because of his love of jazz. And that is the California Report for today, Monday, October 18th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for joining us and have a great day. In today's National Native News, hundreds of individuals have been arrested during the indigenous youth-led People vs. Fossil Fuels demonstrations last week in Washington, D.C. And tribes and conservation groups call for an investigation into new Montana mining claims. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous youth led a march to the Capitol Friday as part of week-long People vs. Fossil Fuels demonstrations in Washington, D.C. The week included demonstrations outside the White House, an Army Corps office, and a sit-in at the Department of the Interior. According to the Indigenous Environmental Network, an organizer, more than 600 people, were arrested during demonstrations last week. Joy Braun with the Indigenous Environmental Network was among those arrested. She told Democracy Now! their message is directed to President Biden. We wanted to bring the front lines to his doorstep to let him see that we are very serious about climate change and declaring a climate emergency. People versus Fossil Fuels came out of Build Back Fossil Free, a coalition of over 200 frontline um, uh, organizations around the, the United States that came together and said, we're not being heard. We're not being listened to. And we have to unite. They're also calling on the administration and Congress to stop all new fossil fuel projects. The Fort Belknap Indian community is requesting an investigation after a mining company filed claims on an environmental reclamation area south of the reservation. Taylor Stagner with Yellowstone Public Radio has more. The Zortman-Landusky Mine Reclamation Area has been under a mineral withdrawal for 20 years. That's an administrative process that keeps land exempt from new mining claims. The Federal Department of Interior has been renewing the mineral withdrawal every five years, but earlier this month, a lapse in that agreement opened up the reclamation area for 48 hours, allowing a mining company out of Minnesota to lay claims on it. Tribal community members and environmental activists want answers about the lack of communication between the Department of Interior, the tribes, and the environmental rights groups that have been working since the late 90s to clean up the Zortman-Landusky mine. Bonnie Gestering is with the conservation group Earthworks. She says the organization has been working to treat water at the old mine. So the extension of the mineral withdrawal is really crucial because not only do we need to protect the existing reclamation work, Uh, But there is ongoing reclamation work and water treatment that needs to be protected in order to um, provide a a safe public resource for those public lands and for the people who live downstream, which is, of course, the Fort Belknap Indian community. Gistering says that the reclamation project has cost around $50 of state and federal funds. The Fort Belknap Indian community and the environmental nonprofits on this project are still waiting a response from the Department of Interior. For National Native News, I'm Taylor Stagner. New data and maps show the pandemic's impact across American Indian and Alaska Native communities. The Mountain West News Bureau's Maggie Mullen reports. When Navajo Nation saw its first cases of COVID-19 in March 2020, Jordan Bennett Begay started a spreadsheet 
She's the managing editor of Indian Country Today, and the spreadsheet was a way to track coronavirus cases across indigenous communities. At the time, that data was incomplete. Today, that spreadsheet has evolved into an interactive and comprehensive set of maps and data that are available online. The project was a collaboration between the news outlet and the Johns Hopkins Center for American Indian Health. Allison Barlow directs the center. This is so important in terms of allocation of resources, whether it was, you know, PPE at the beginning of the pandemic or diagnostic testing, antibody testing, and so forth. How do you distribute these federal resources if you don't know really where um, the hotspots are? The maps are available to the public and are updated regularly using data from tribes. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Sanoski Chambers Law Firm, championing tribal sovereignty and defending Native American rights since 1976 with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Support by BNSF Railway, innovating with fuel-efficient locomotives and technologies to help reduce emissions and improve air quality. More about BNSF's commitment to the environment at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. In regional news... The Union of Grass Valley reports the long-standing Kmart in McKnight Crossing Shopping Center is finally shuttering its doors. A store employee says California's last Kmart would close sometime in mid-December. Grass Valley Community Development Director Tom Last says the shopping center's property manager confirmed a Target store will be taking over the newly available space. Nevada County hosts their first community Zoom workshop this Thursday from 6 to 7.30 p.m. in regards to goals for the future development and amenities in Higgins Corner and Lake of the Pines in the South County region. This is the first of four meetings. The meeting will include a short presentation on the project goals and background, followed by discussions in small groups. Topics include establishing a vision for the area, integrating culture, commerce, and housing, and guidance on developing land use, transportation, and recreational opportunities. The project's webpage, greaterhigginsareaplan.com, provides information about the project and community Zoom workshops. Tomorrow, Pacific Gas and Electric hosts an enhanced power safety webinar for Placer, Nevada, and Sierra County residents to discuss new power line safety settings from 5.30 to 7 p.m. The Public Utility Behemoth will cover their adjustment of certain electric equipment in high-fire threat areas to automatically turn off power faster if problems are detected. Customers will have opportunities to ask questions to PG&E representatives during the webinar. Find the webinar link and additional info on Ubinet. Placer County Public Health will open a small COVID-19 vaccine community clinic beginning tomorrow for access as additional populations become eligible for their primary immunization series or for boosters. The clinic will operate five hours a day, three days a week, and offer Pfizer and J&J vaccines. 
The clinic is located in the Maidu Community Center in Roseville and will also offer free PCR testing with an average of 24 to 48 hour turnaround time. A quick reminder, this is the last week to fill out the South Yuba River Citizens League's Visitor Impact Survey. The survey closes on Saturday, October 23rd. The results will be used to inform future initiatives, information campaigns, and safety messaging. And last but definitely not least, sadly, legendary KFAT and K-Pig DJ Sherman Kaufman, known to listeners as Uncle Sherman, passed away last Saturday at the age of 75 after a long battle with cancer. And now for regional weather and your air quality index. Are you as excited as I am for this rain? Despite our enthusiasm, beware that precipitation and cooler weather brings along the chance of mountain snow, which will impact travel. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 35. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 58. Showers shall make a late triumphant return. Precipitation is likely after 11 p.m. Current air quality is good with an AQI of 6. Tomorrow's air quality is good as well with a potential AQI of 19. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 19. Patchy freezing fog after 3 a.m. Tomorrow, freezing fog before 9 a.m., then mostly sunny with a high near 52. Snow is likely Tuesday evening. Current air quality is good with an AQI of 1. Tomorrow's air quality is good with a potential AQI of 12. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 43. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 62. Showers will return late Tuesday night, mainly after 11 p.m. Current air quality in the region is good, with an AQI of 1. Tomorrow will be good as well, with a potential AQI of 12. Next, we take our bi-weekly walk in the park with Sid Brown. On today's segment, Sid gives us an auditory autumnal tour of Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park. She divulges everything we need to know for a fall visit to one of Nevada County's state historic parks. Well, it's beautiful weather upon us, and hopefully when you hear my voice, it's still beautiful autumn weather. The fall colors are really coming into their own in western Nevada County. I was up at Malakoff Diggins just this past Sunday on a, a smallish hike, but it counted. It was four or five miles and walked through the downtown, quote, downtown area of North Bloomfield. The trees along the North Bloomfield Road in the town of North Bloomfield are just spectacular right now. If we get a big rain or a big wind, you know, they could start to fall, but there is a a sequence. So a tree that is gorgeous and full of red leaves today might lose a few leaves, but the tree next to it might be just coming on into its beautiful gold or crimson or yellow fall colors. Autumn is really Malakoff's shining time, in my opinion. Trails are all open, although the campground is closed for the season. And the little office, museum, the back area at Malakoff Diggins, the museum itself is still closed, but the little front store um, where the park staff work and operate is open every day. 
the the entrance fee at Malakoff, the day use fee at all three state parks is just $5 per day. And I believe that might even be transferable if you go to more than one park in the same day. So, boy, there's just no better deal going than that, a whole car full for $5 in one of the most beautiful places in Northern California. So Malakoff Diggins is a place I highly recommend that you visit all year round, but especially in the fall. And and we have some really wonderful, um, up-to-date interpretive signs throughout the park. And so if you haven't been there in a while, I encourage you to go and visit and, and read the signs because people learn things every time. I'll tell you that this time, even though I've been to the park numerous times, I can't even tell you how many times this last time, I took a little uh, trail segment I had not ever taken before, and that's the Upper Humbug Trail that crosses Humbug Creek just outside of town and goes upstream behind the Blair Pond and then connects with a trail that goes up into the campground and an overlook and takes you back into town to the historic cemetery where the school and the church are and then a loop they call I think the slaughterhouse trail that takes you back into the the park so that's a lovely little hike you don't have to take the upper humbug trail you can go along the road and then catch it at the Blair Pond which is quite low but still very beautiful so that's Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park South Yuba River State Park is also beautiful any time of year. Now that it's autumn, the the crowds have certainly thinned out and, you know, going into the river is maybe not nearly as enticing or perhaps even advised so much, but it's still a beautiful place to hike along the Hoyts Trail, South Yuba Trail, down toward Bridgeport. There's the um, Point Defiance Trail and Buttermilk Bend Trail. So beautiful trails along water and also fall color. The Bridgeport Bridge is nearing completion of its wonderful historic restoration work. Um, We're just weeks away, I'm pretty sure, from being able to welcome the public across the bridge. So stay tuned for that. And Empire Mine State Historic Park, right in outside, just barely outside downtown Grass Valley, is a visited so much by tourists, and I'm kind of surprised not so many local folks, but I see people visiting the uh, little gift shop there when I work on Saturdays or sometimes Sundays. Um, People from all over, lots of international visitation at Empire Mine State Park, and we have tours of the grounds uh, now uh, led by volunteer docents, tours of the garden area and tours of the mine yard as well as the blacksmiths working almost every single day. So the interior part of Empire Mine State Historic Park is open from 10 until 4, and the trails outside that walled historic area are open all the time, sunrise to sunset. I walked the trails several times this week at Empire Mine. They're in great shape. You can see the park staff has been working on fire wildfire abatement and and doing some thinning, forest thinning and doing piles in preparation for winter months where they can get rid of some of that excess fuel load and keep our parks a little bit more safe. So that's it for this week. 
But stay tuned. There's going to be more exciting news coming down the pike, and I just hope you always remember to appreciate our local state parks. Sid Brown sits on the board of the Sierra Gold Parks Foundation and joins us every other week with news and updates from Nevada County's three state parks. Learn more at sierragoldparksfoundation.org. That's our newscast for this Monday, October 18th. KVMR gets support from Weiss Landscaping. With over 75 years of generational experience in landscape architecture, design, and installation, Weiss Landscaping crews are educated, experienced, and provide accountability with warranties on craftsmanship, installations, and irrigation projects. Go WeissLandscaping.com. Stick around. At 6.30, it's the Women's International News Gathering Service, WINGS. On tonight's episode, former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has been lauded for her efforts at feminist foreign policy. But not until 2014 did a country, Sweden, give the name feminist to its own foreign policy. Now Mexico and Libya have declared they have feminist foreign policy and Canada is dipping its toe in that water. On tonight's program, three experts in the field of FFP give their opinions. Hint. Their ideas go well beyond what HRC would have dared. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.